turning please in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we're going to read uh, the chapter together and we're continuing on in our series on when we see Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll read from the verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness." Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also to you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Amen. We'll finish there, and we do know God will bless his word to our hearts again this morning for his name's sake. So we're coming now to the second of the five crowns which we find it is possible for the child of God, the Christian, to receive when we stand before uh, the judgment seat of Christ. If you think back a few weeks now, um, we began in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we looked at how every member of the church of Jesus Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that uh, judgment seat, we'll give account uh, before the Lord for our service, and we will be rewarded if our service is pleasing uh, to Him. And I said in our last study in the crowns that the primary reason we're looking at the crowns of reward is because if these are the specific things that we will be rewarded for, then these are the things which the Lord requires of His people in the first place. In our last study then, we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we considered what Erwin Lutzer calls in his commentary, the crown of mastery. And there were three things that we noticed. We noticed the race, we noticed the reward, and we noticed the reality. 
And for us, as we looked at that a number of weeks back, the application was that we all run in the race. We all have a responsibility to serve the Lord according to his word, not according to our feelings, not according to our own opinions, not according to our own views, but according to the word of God. Our responsibility is to be faithful to this book. Now, these rewards are not to be our motivation. These crowns are not to be our motivation. Our motivation is to be Christ himself, that we would seek to glorify him, that we would seek to live for him. He is the one who Peter describes as our example. But nonetheless, the word of God does define that there are a number of crowns that we can receive. So we want to understand uh, what this is about for us, what it means for us as God's people. So if we have thought about the crown of mastery, we're moving on this morning uh, to think about the crown that's described in verse 19, the crown of rejoicing. Paul wrote to the believers in the church in Thessalonica about the crown of rejoicing. He wrote two letters to the believers in Thessalonica. This is the first letter. And when you turn to this letter, as you read through it and as you begin to study it, you'll find that there's a very strong emphasis placed in Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in both letters actually, but in this first epistle primarily, he talks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In each of the five chapters that we have in 1 Thessalonians, we'll see that Paul refers to that theme. He refers to it in chapter 1 and verse 10. He says there that we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. We see it in our reading this morning in verse 19. He says, are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You see it in chapter 3 and verse 13. At the very end of the verse, Paul speaks about how we, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it's referred to there about the coming. Verse 15, 16 and 17, actually, it speaks about the coming of the Lord. And you see it again in chapter 5 and verse 23. So we can see there's a clear theme about the return of the Lord that runs through this letter. But it's not the only theme of the letter. It's one of the themes. It's a primary theme. But Paul also refers in this letter to the Thessalonians about the importance of being bold for the sake of the gospel. He speaks about boldness. He speaks about love and how there ought to be love among the believers in the local church. He speaks about the need for care and compassion and for pastoral care and pastoral compassion. Paul speaks about the thankfulness that he has for the faithful way in which the Thessalonian believers had received the word of God, even when they were being persecuted because of it. So there's many themes in this letter. But our theme this morning is where Paul speaks about the crown of rejoicing. And it's interesting when you read these verses and when you set it all in its context, it's interesting that Paul speaks about the crown of rejoicing and he has a certainty that he's going to receive this. He says here in verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul knows that he's going to receive this crown because he knows why he's going to receive this crown. When you read what Paul has written in chapter 2, you can see that his certainty hinges upon faithfulness. 
It hinges upon faithfulness to the Lord in all things. It hinges upon God's faithfulness to him. Do you know, we could sum up the crown of rejoicing in just a few words. And maybe by the time we're finished, you'll wish I had just summed it up in a few words. But we could sum it up like this. I can sum it up personally as the pastor of the church. My crown of rejoicing will be to see those who have been pointed to Christ or those who have been built up in their faith under my ministry. That will be my crown of rejoicing. Those who are there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. That's what Paul's speaking about here. John Valverde, the commentator, puts it like this. He says he looked forward, Paul he's speaking about, looked forward to the glad day when this life's journey would be over. And he would be in the presence of the Lord along with the other Christians. The answer to the question in verse 19 where Paul says, what is our, we'll abbreviate it, what is our crown of rejoicing? The answer to the question for Paul was believers like the Thessalonians. Because Paul goes on and answers it in verse 20. Ye are our glory and joy. Paul had ministered to them. He had preached the gospel to them. They'd come to faith in Christ. He had taught them. He had encouraged them. He had sought to build them up in the the word of God, in the teaching of the word of God. And therefore, his rejoicing would be gained in their presence in heaven. But it's important that we notice that this goes beyond pastoral ministry. It's not simply pastoral ministry which is evident here. Remember, Paul wasn't the pastor of the church in Thessalonica. Paul was an evangelist. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. And he came to the area. He preached the gospel. And then he taught the word. He corrected error. He cared for them. He lived his Christian life before them. But he moved on eventually. And as he moved on, And he went to other places to serve the Lord. That ministry continued. But when he moved on, one of the things that we can see as you read through Paul's letters is that he left his mark upon their lives. He left his mark upon the lives who were saved through him preaching the gospel. He left his mark upon those who were built up and encouraged through his teaching. And for every Christian this morning, pastor, elder, deacon, member, adherent, friend of the fellowship here, whoever you might be, if you're a believer this morning, for you, you can receive the crown of rejoicing. Are you telling others about Christ? Are you seeking to build up God's people in their faith? Are you seeking to leave a mark upon the lives of others which will stand for eternity? Because that's the question here. There's five things in our passage, and I won't be taking as long on each of my points this morning because we've got five. But the first one is this. We see Paul speaking here about evident love, and we want to see our evident love this morning. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Paul says, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. So whenever you read this chapter, whenever you read the first few verses of the chapter, before these verses that we've just read, you'll see how Paul wrote about the truth of the gospel. You'll see how Paul had been forthright. 
You'll see that he exhorted them and he spoke the gospel of God unto them. He was faithful to them. He had he hadn't used flattering words is what he says in verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words. In other words, neither at any time did we try and soften the message or soften what we had to say to keep you happy. That's what Paul's speaking about here. They didn't use flattering words. He went in and he hit the nail on the head. To use a Northern Ireland phrase, I suppose, Paul wasn't backwards and coming forwards here. He didn't just sit back and say, well, I'll just keep everybody happy. Paul just told the truth as it was. They all knew where they stood with him. But as you read on in verse 6, you see that Paul was doing this and he wasn't seeking for his own glory. And he wasn't seeking to further his own agenda as an apostle. He says in verse 6, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. That phrase, uh, be burdensome, it literally means used authority. Paul's really saying here, look, I didn't come in and lord it over you. I didn't come in and say to you, I have authority which is greater than yours. He came in and he spoke the truth, but he certainly wasn't looking for glory for himself. And Paul was able to say this to them very safely because Paul, whenever you read at the end of verse 5, Paul said, God is witness. Think about this. For all of us this morning, just in passing, could we say that and mean it? Can we actually say, God is witness? When we think about our faithfulness to the Lord and how we have served Him in what we do and in our service and in our encouragement for others and in how we interact with God's people, can we say that God is witness and I have no concern about how I've conducted myself here. It's a serious reminder for us of this truth that there's nothing done in a corner. There's nothing hidden in the sight of God. So Paul's talking about his forthrightness. He's talking about how he's told the truth. He's talking about how he's been faithful and how God is witness. But then we come into verse 7. And he says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now the literal picture there of a nurse cherishing her children, it's of a nursing mother. That's really the picture. That's the phrase that's being used. Maybe you can picture the scene of the mother with the little child or the newborn baby. And Paul's putting this point across in the thought process. He's got a picture here which he's painting of tenderness, a picture of compassion, a picture of care. Paul traveled from place to place and he preached the gospel. And he preached truth. And he labored for the sake of the gospel. And while he did that, and while he was forthright, still he had a tenderness about him. He spoke the truth. But he always sought to speak the truth in love. He didn't hold back on the important messages of the gospel. He didn't hold back on the, on the doctrines which needed to be taught. We can see that in his letters, how he was so faithful in declaring the truth. But behind it all, and permeating it all, actually. Paul loved the people. And he displayed a tenderness for them. And the depth of the love displayed by Paul is the same love, and is the same depth of love that those who have responsibility for leadership in the local church should have towards those who the Lord has entrusted to them. But the same depth of love is also required between every brother and sister in the fellowship towards each other. We should all have this love. 
Think for a moment about a mother caring for the child and that natural care of a mother towards her children. It's, it's, the word here is the word cherisheth, but the Greek word that's translated as cherisheth has the literal meaning of warming or to warm. And maybe you can picture this as the mother holds that little child close, warming the child perhaps even with their own uh, body heat. That's the picture. That's what Paul is speaking about here. We ought to demonstrate such a tenderness of heart towards the people of God. As I was thinking about this, this picture, and the picture speaks about love, speaks about tenderness, it speaks about kindness and compassion, there's a challenge to me. There's a challenge to my heart, and I hope indeed that there will be a challenge to every heart. But is my love evident? I have to ask myself that question. Is my love for the flock evident? I trust that it is. I desire that it would be. I work towards it being so. But this love isn't just my responsibility. It's the responsibility of every believer and every child of God towards one another. Do we see the depth of love that's required here? Paul goes on in verse 8 to describe the depth of love. Paul says here, being affectionately desirous of you, Ye were will, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Do you see that? Also our own souls. Because ye were dear unto us, his compassion for them was to such an extent that Paul was saying, I would give my life for you. I would give everything for you. I think about this. Just consider that in our hearts for a moment or two. I think if we are honest with ourselves and we look within and then we look around at our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the fellowship, we have to be honest and say, perhaps all of us, I don't want to speak for anybody else because I can only speak for myself here, but I'm saying perhaps all of us have a way to go to be in such a place. Anyone who's involved in the work of God, anyone who's involved in ministry, whatever that work might be, needs to understand the cost in our own lives. You see, we're not our own. We're Christ's. We've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. Well, and not only is there this thought that we are Christ's, and not only is there this idea that there's a cost to our own lives, but added to this, do we value the people we worship with to such an extent do we value the people that we serve to such an extent that it's evident? Do others see it in us? And beloved, this morning as we think about this, this picture of love, this evident love, that's just one step along the journey towards the crown of rejoicing that Paul speaks about here. One step towards our glory and joy. See our evident love, but I want you to see, secondly, our effective labor. Look at verse 9. Paul's spoken about this love that's to be demonstrated. But then in verse 9, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. There's an important word at the start of verse 9. And I have a terrible habit sometimes with these little words whenever I'm reading. And even when I'm reading publicly, that little word at the start of the verse, sometimes I miss it out as I get into the, into the start of the reading. But there's an important word here, the word for. It's very important. Paul says to them, because of this love, because 
We love the Lord. And because we love you in the Lord, we have labored earnestly for you. You remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day. Do you know, if you turn back just one chapter to verse 3 of chapter 1, you'll see Paul in his greeting to the church. And Paul here is commending them for a number of different things. But look what he says. As he's saying in verse 2, he's praying, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. What is he remembering? Your work of faith and labor of love. The same two things that he's now speaking about, and he's reciprocating that towards them. That he loves them. And that he labors for them. Those things that they did because of their hope in Christ. Because they served, actually, when you look at it in verse 3, they served in sight of God and our Father. Paul's reminding them of this. He's reminding them of their faithfulness. He's reminding them of their love. He's encouraged by their faithfulness and their love. But Paul now addresses the fact that he loves them. And he labors for them. In fact, he labors and travails and he works and labors day and night. Do you know, I was sitting on Friday, just after having my dinner on Friday evening. And I had to go back into the study to finish off preparation for today. And then I was going out to a meeting here, coming out to a meeting here. And then I knew that on Saturday morning I had to go and, and teach in, in, the, in the seminary down in Lurgan. But I wasn't ready for this morning. Now, after I'd had my dinner on Friday evening, I was tired. Sometimes that happens as you get older, you know that. You get a wee bit tired after you've had your dinner. And I didn't want to go into the study. I wanted to sit and put my feet up. But I knew that if something happened on Saturday that would eat into the day and impact the day, I wouldn't have time to prepare and I wouldn't be ready to preach today. So I had to go and study. And I went into the study because the work had to be done. And sometimes we can find it hard. We're all like that. Sometimes it's not easy. Paul here talks about labor. He talks about travail. And the idea here is a picture of tiring effort. In fact, the, the root word here, John Phillips states that the root word that's used here for travail suggests difficulty. It's hard work. It's labor. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes it's something that we wish we didn't have to do. And we all can be like that. But there's a responsibility as God's people to work hard in the fellowship, to work hard to serve the Lord. And I know, and the elders know, and we're very aware and genuinely appreciate the efforts of so many in the fellowship who work hard in different ways for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the work of God. We do appreciate that. But notice that Paul uses a particular phrase here. He uses it twice in verse 8 and verse 9. He also uses it in verse 2. He talks about the gospel of God. Now, we talk about the gospel. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul here uses a slightly different phrase. He talks about the gospel of God. And the picture here is of the fullness of the work of God. It's the, 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 the broad scope of what God has done. This idea that salvation is of the Lord, as the prophet Jonah ha has said previously. That it's planned by God. It's designed by God. And it's a message that we declare it's a message that we ought to rejoice in. 
It's a message that we ought to uh, declare to everyone and anyone, if at all possible. We ought to labor in this message because it's the gospel of God. We ought to labor to encourage one another in the power of the gospel of God. We ought to be seeking to build one another up as we're seeking to serve the Lord and to declare the gospel of God. Let's not forget, we have benefited from it as God's people. We have experienced that if you're saved this morning, you have benefited from the gospel of God. You've experienced the wonder of it. We should be seeking to tell others, but we should also be seeking to build one another up in it. Do you know what is a great joy? I know I talked about sometimes how you can be tired and not want to do it, but it is a great joy for me to have the privilege, and it's a privilege, to be digging into the treasures of the Word of God in order to seek under God to build up this flock in the fullness of the gospel of God. It is the greatest privilege to know that we're redeemed, to know that we're to live for Him, to know that we're to be living for Him, to, laboring, to be laboring for Him, to be looking for the Lord. We should all labor to encourage one another in such a way. There's evident love, there's effective labor, but I want you to see our earnest longing. Look at verse 10 down to verse 12. And Paul here turns the role model around, or he changes the role model actually. In verse 7 and verse 8, he talked about as a nurse, and it's a nursing mother, as you remember, cherishing her children. But in verse 10 down to verse 12, the role model moves from the mother to the father. He says, you're witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now just before we get to this thought, there's just a little aside. Paul knew that he was able to say these things to them because his testimony was borne out before them. His testimony of his love for the flock and his labor for the flock was evident. He says that himself. He says, ye are witnesses. And God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. He knew it to be true. They knew it to be true. And the Lord knew it to be true. And that ought to be our aspiration as believers. That we have such a testimony that no one can lay any charge against us. That if someone was to say something about us, that instinctively the response would be, no, that can't be right. That can't be right. It's far from easy, of course, because we know what our nature is like. But we should still endeavor to have that testimony, to have that standing before God and before one another. But then notice verse 11 and verse 12. Paul's consistent here in his exhortation to them about their walk. Why is he consistent about his exhortation? Well, here it's very simple. It's because he loved them. He says, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. He's exhorting them as a father towards his children. Why does a father exhort? Why does a father comfort? Why does a father charge? Because he loves his children. And that's the picture here. And as we seek to live for the Lord, are we those who are seeking to encourage one another? As they labor for the Lord in whatever sphere of service, in whatever work they do. And, and it might be something that other people might consider insignificant. Let me say to you this morning, if you're doing a work for the Lord, it's not insignificant as far as God's concerned. And that's so important for us all to remember. 
If you're doing a work and you're doing it unto the Lord, it's not insignificant to him. The words here in verse 11, exhorted, comforted, and charged. Notice the little phrase afterwards. Every one of you. Every one of you. Paul's burden wasn't just for a few people in the church in Thessalonica. His burden was for them all. Every one of you. In fact, when you look back uh, in chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Sometimes we miss those those little words. It was for all of them. He exhorted and comforted and charged them all. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about whenever I first came here uh, to pastor and the work, and everybody wanted me to come and do question and answer sessions, all of the different youth and children's works. And we did one at Good News Club, and it was a video and all of those sorts of things. I went to Sunday school and answered a few questions. Then I went to Salt, and I answered some questions there, and then I was to bring a little word. But at Salt, one of the questions, it was a quick fire quick fire round of questions and you can very quickly say something wrong in a situation like that and one of the questions was this and they're going to be embarrassed now when I say it one of the questions was this favorite son David or Noah now the answer to that could be both the answer to that could be neither both of those could be right but the answer wasn't one or the other Paul writing to the believers in Thessalonica as he was seeking to encourage them to press on in their faith. Paul had no favorites. It was all of them. Every one of you. And as we are here together in the fellowship, and as we all labor to serve the Lord, and we might labor in different ways and in different spheres, and we might not always get on, and we might not always agree, but we ought to be those who are encouraging others to press on in the words of Paul to walk worthy of God. Encouraging everyone to walk worthy of God. The picture is tenderness again, by the way, because there's this idea in exhorting of coming alongside. It's actually the word that's translated as exhorting comes through the same root word that we get paraclete, the Holy Spirit draws alongside. It comes from the same root word. The idea is of aiding or directing or instructing. But then you come on down and there's this last word in verse 11. Exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. And that word charged is important. It's a reminder that faithfulness is important in the Christian life and failure to walk worthy could bring discipline. You see, Paul longed earnestly for them to progress. He longed for them to succeed as a father might do as he watches his children take those steps out into the world, following their path in in the world, whatever that path might be, and desiring that above everything else, as parents, we would desire for our children that they walk worthy of the Lord. Paul's looking at the believers and he's saying to those believers in Thessalonica, my desire for you is as a father that you would walk worthy of God. We ought to have that earnest longing that those we fellowship with would walk worthy and that's all of them. It should never, ever be the case that a Christian should be looking at another Christian and wanting them to fail in service. We should be consistently seeking to encourage one another in the work of God. Our evident love, our effective labor, our earnest longing, our expectant looking. We come down to verse 19 now. And we come down to this idea 
of what Paul's speaking about. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? So he's asked this question. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? What is our crown? Well, Paul gives the answer straight away. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Our expectant looking. Paul has declared his love. He's demonstrated his labor. He's defined his longing. And then we come to verse 19. And he tells them that when the Lord Jesus returns... And he takes his church to him in the air. That Paul will rejoice. Paul will be there. They will be there. And Paul will rejoice and be crowned for those, not only those who he's won for the Lord, but those who he has taught in the word. Those who he has encouraged and sought to build up. Paul will see these Thessalonian believers. And he says, for ye are our glory and joy. But Paul could say that not just for the Thessalonians. He would say that for the Colossians. He would say that for the Philippians, for the Romans, the Ephesians, the Galatians, for the others who he wrote those pastoral epistles to, to Timothy and to Titus and many others who were named in some of his letters. And Paul would say to them that ye are our glory and joy. Those who he's taught and encouraged and cared for in his service for the Lord. So what does that mean for us today? What does that mean, not just for the the preacher in the pulpit, but for the Christian in the pew? Perhaps never preached a sermon. Well, I believe, I firmly believe that this reward is available for all who have sought to tell others about Christ and have sought to build up others and encourage them along the way. And I know that some Bible commentators probably have a different view than that. But Paul here is writing to believers He's writing to the church of believers in Thessalonica and he's encouraging them in their Christian life and then he tells them after he's encouraged them in their walk and in their life, he tells them that they would be his glory and joy. So surely for all of us as we seek to build others up in their Christian life, surely there will be those who will be our glory and joy if we've sought to live like this. Surely as we meet the Lord, and and there's no doubt that when we meet the Lord in the air, he's going to be the center of our attention. We'll see him. Of course we will. Of course our focus will be upon seeing the one who redeemed us, the one who has saved us. But I believe what we see here, as Paul talks about these Thessalonian believers, and he says, are are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for ye are our glory and joy? Paul's telling us something here. He's telling us that we'll know one another in heaven. He's telling us that we will see one another in heaven. And he's telling us that we will rejoice in those who we meet there, who we knew and who we lived for and who we served. We will glory in the fact that we will meet one another in heaven. And if we have sought to witness to others and they've subsequently come to Christ, well, they will form part of our glory and joy. One writer puts it like this, one great part of heaven's bliss for the redeemed will be the joyful presence of those whom they've been used to reach. If you've prayed for unsaved family, unsaved loved ones, unsaved neighbors, maybe you've prayed for them and they've trusted in Christ, let me tell you, you're part of the link in the chain and they will be your glory and joy. They will be the means of your receiving the crown of rejoicing. I'm going to say to you this morning as 
the pastor, it will thrill my soul to meet you there on that glorious day. Philippians 4 and verse 1, we read these words. It says, My brethren, dearly beloved and longed for my crown, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Paul's focus as he thought about his joy and crown, it all hinges around the fact that he loved them. Twice there in Philippians 4 and verse 1, he calls them his dearly beloved. You know, the crown of rejoicing is a reward for those who seek to bring others with them to heaven. It's for those who seek to encourage those who are saved to walk worthy of God. And it will be a bright crown, a brighter crown, for the presence of those dear brothers and sisters. We'll see Jesus, but we'll rejoice to see one another. And we will look for one another in glory. We sung uh, the words of that last hymn. The second verse says, Jesus is coming. The dead shall arise. Loved ones shall meet in a joyful surprise. Caught up together to him in the skies. Jesus is coming again. We see our evident love. We see our effective labor, our earnest longing, our expectant looking. But I want us to finish at the center point. We see our eternal Lord. Because look at verse 19 in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. See, Paul never missed the mark in his letters. Yes, there's great rejoicing when we come to the glory. And yes, there'll be rejoicing because we'll see one another in heaven. But Paul reminds us that in the midst of that glory, there's a much brighter and a much greater glory because we'll be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. And yes, We want to see you over there. Yes, we want to meet you over there. Yes, it will thrill our hearts to see you there. And yes, we'll glory and joy in that fact. But beloved, this morning, our heart's desire would be that we would see Jesus. That we will see him. That he will be the center point of our glory. The lamb who was slain. The one who redeemed us. The one who will be our glorious eternal king. He'll rule because God will put all enemies under his feet and we'll be with him. So yes, the crowns are there. And yes, these crowns are important. But the great reward is Christ himself. And we strive to serve him. We strive for honor. We strive because we love him. And when we see him, and when we're with him, there'll be no greater joy, no greater wonder. A greater blessing. We say, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly.